19. Now Jesus' mother and his brothers came to him, but they could not get near him because of the crowd. So he was told, Your mother and your brothers are standing outside wanting to see you. But he replied to them, My mother and my brother are those who hear the word of God and do it. He's not saying, Ah, oh, forget them. They're not really my family. I don't want anything to do with it anymore. That's the people who do the word of God. No, he's using this as a teaching moment. Because we know that he loved his mother and brought her in and that kind of stuff. And we know that his brothers, they don't like him too much right now, but eventually they will, and they will be, James will become the head of the church in the book of Acts, his biological brother, um, half-brother. We know that he's okay with this, and they're going to follow him, and he's going to accept him on other occasions. What he, the point he's making is somebody's like, oh, your parents are here. Or your mother is here and your brothers are here. And he's not saying, well, forget them. He's saying, okay, that's nice. But on that matter, on that topic, and that, that thing, who is really truly my family? Ultimately, those who do the word of God, those who respond. That's truly who family members are. It's not the ones who say, I am a Christian. It's not the ones who say, I have done these things. It's the ones who hear the word and respond. It's the ones who produce fruit. Verse 22. One day Jesus got into a boat with his disciples and said to them, Let's go across to the other side to the lake. So they set out, and as they sailed, he fell asleep. Now a violent windstorm came down on the lake, and the boat started filling up with water, and they were in danger. And they came and woke him, saying, Master, Master, we are about to die. So he got up and rebuked the wind and the raging waves, and they died down, and it was calm. And then he said to them, when is, Where is your faith? But they were afraid and amazed, saying to one another, Who then is this? He commands even the winds and the water, and they obey him. There are two calming of the storms. There's a calming where he's in the boat and falling asleep. And there's the one where he's not in the boat, he's across the lake praying. Both of them are very significant. Because, one, these are seasoned fishermen. Now, maybe... The non-fishermen were panicking more than the fishermen, but they're seasoned fishermen. The Sea of Galilee is a sea that's about three to six miles wide, and it is surrounded by mountains. And it means that because of the way that it's completely surrounded by mountains, like in a bowl, that that they're going up towards the higher and higher regions as you go further north in Israel, the way that the air pressure and the winds work is that they can drop down into this valley very quickly and create flash waves. And because they're surrounded by mountains, they don't see these storms coming either. They just come up over the mountains quickly, and then they get like steroids as they come down, the way the air pressure works. These storms can be out of the middle of nowhere. They can catch you off guard, and they can darken the skies very quickly. And yet, they would be used to this. This would be a common practice for them. Yet, this one is bad enough that they're freaked out. And yet, they do think that Jesus should be able to do something. Now, probably is bailing water or whatever, or giving them some guidance, praying for them, whatever. But he's sleeping. Now, when he calms the storm, they're wowed. Because the question is, who is it that can calm the storm? The three symbols of chaos, absolute, utter chaos in the Bible, and we talked about this back in Genesis, is darkness, the raging sea, and the Leviathan slash serpent slash dragon or dinosaur. Okay, these, be, these things are the symbols of chaos. 
And the one that's far greater than them all is the sea. No one has ever calmed the sea. See, even today, with all of our technology and all of our computers and everything that we have as American and China, the two greatest and most developed technological countries in the entire world, probably also Japan, when that typhoon comes along, nobody has been able to stop it. When that hurricane comes to Florida, nobody has been able to stop it. Our technology doesn't even dent it. In fact, we don't have any technology that can do anything other than boarding up houses and fleeing for our lives. There's nothing. And this is considered the greatest power in all of creation. This is why Baal, the storm god, was the one that he went, God went head-to-head against more than any other time. This is why the Japanese greatest, most fearsome thing that they've ever come up with in movies that has moved all throughout all cultures is Godzilla of the sea. Okay, It's the Leviathan coming out of the sea at nighttime. It actually encapsulates all three of those, and it's like the greatest franchise ever, probably, worldwide. This is it. So Jesus is out in the storm, and he speaks, and it stops. And they're wowed, and they're amazed. The next time he does this, it's going to be at nighttime, too. So it's going to be at night, in the middle of a raging storm, and then they look out, and they see something coming at them, and it says they think it's a ghost, which is probably a leviathan. They think the sea monster is coming from them in the middle of the darkness of the great sea. This is the most evil, chaotic time and place that you could ever be in. And then Jesus just walks across the water. Now, this is important because in the ancient images, the gods would often try to show how they're more powerful than other gods. And they would have images of them actually standing on top of the storm and even on top of a dragon. And they would say that I have the right to be your god. Follow me because I calm the storm. So what Jesus is doing is actually recreating ancient propaganda posters of why he has the right to be God, but he's doing it in a human body in the material realm, not in some mythological story in some unknown Greek or um, Canaanite kingdom, but in the real physical historical world. And he calms it. But the other thing he's doing is the first time he's in the boat asleep, the second time he's not in the boat, because the next time the storm comes, he's going to ascend into heaven, and they're going to be on their own. And what he's doing is weaning them off of his physical presence. Do you believe that I can calm the storm even when I'm not consciously aware in the way that you think of me being consciously aware? Okay, now that you realize that I can do that, do you believe that I'm still in control and can take care of you when I'm not even in the boat, but I'm still somewhere around you? Okay, now that you've seen that, do you believe that even when I go up into the heavens and I say, lo, I've been with you to the ends of the earth, that when the storm comes, you still believe that I'll take care of you and I'll calm the storm. And so he's communicating that I have mastery over the greatest source of chaos and evil in all the world, whether I'm conscious, whether I'm there or not. I am God. And at this moment, after the Son of God's statements and the calming of the storm, in fact, when you get to the, the, the Peter walking on the water one, the one where he was in the boat, they're actually going to bow down and worship him. That's blasphemy, according to the law. This storm is going to push them to the conclusion that he's more than just a human, probably more than anything else that he ever does. Because even Elijah raised people, even Elijah healed people, even people spoke great things, even Moses and Joshua led victories against battles. But nobody controlled the storm like Yahweh has. 
And so this is a powerful statement to his godhood and to his uniqueness. And they even say this. Even, he even commands the winds. Who does that? 26. So they sailed over to the region, the Gerasenes, which is the Gentiles, which is opposite Galilee. If you're looking at the map, you basically have the Sea of Galilee up here. And the region of the Gerasenes is to the northeast of the Galilee. And this is all Gentile territory. There are no Jews there. Thus the pig herders and all that kind of stuff, which are unclean animals in Judaism. On the western and southern side, it's Jews. On the eastern northern side, it's Gentiles. And then going up into the north, it's all Gentiles. They sail over that region, which means this is intentional. Before, it just happened to be a Gentile among the Jews, the Roman centurion, coming to seek him out. Now he's actually sailing over into their territory. He is intentionally seeking them out. What's interesting is that's the same direction Elijah went before he came back up into Phoenicia and healed the Phoenician Gentile woman. Well, raised her boy from the dead and provided her flour and oil. A certain man from the town met him. Now a certain man means that it could have been any man. It's just some common man. From the town, men have been possessed by demons. For a long time, this man had worn no clothes and had not lived in a house, but among the tombs. So he is defiled as you get defiled. He is demon-possessed. He is naked in front of everybody, which has been incredibly scandalous and inappropriate. And not only that, he's living among tombs, the graves, the dead, which would make him unclean, and even connect superstitious stuff to him. And he's got demons in him. And on top of that... He is able to break chains and, and do incredible physical feats. This is the guy that everybody stays away from. He's scared, he's demonic, he's evil, he's dark, superstitious. And all the elementary school kids dare you to go get close to him. Okay, this is that guy. When they saw Jesus, he cried out and fell down before him and shouted with a loud voice, Leave me alone, Jesus, son of the most high God. I beg you, do not torment me. He immediately proclaims Jesus, the demons do. And we've already seen this, where the demons immediately recognize Jesus for who he is. But what's interesting is that we're in a different territory now. Remember, the ancients believed that the gods only control certain regions, but they don't have dominion outside of that region. Like, our president doesn't have control outside of America and Russia, and the president of Russia doesn't have device. They believe that. So now we're not only just he controlled demons in Israel. We've now entered into Gentile regions and he's controlling demons there too. And they're acknowledging him there as well. Do not torment me. For Jesus started commanding the evil spirit to come out of the man. For it had seized him many times so that he would be bound with chains and shackles and kept under guard. But he would break the restraints and be driven by the demon into the des deserted places. Jesus then asked him, what is your name? He said, Legion. Now the name Legion is a regiment of a thousand soldiers and the Roman army. And so I don't think you should really see like, oh, he has 1,000 demons in him. Exactly. The point is he has a lot of demons in him. And this makes the point that you can have more than one demon inside of you. Because many demons had entered in him. And they begin to beg him not to order them to depart from him into the abyss. This is interesting. They're afraid that Jesus is going to torment them. They're afraid that Jesus is going to throw them in the abyss. What does this mean? Well, back in Genesis 6, we're told that the sons of God, 
who are divine beings, angelic beings, came down in the days of Noah and they slept with human women. And because of that, God had to wipe out creation. Now, I know some of you might be like, "Ah, I don't take that view. But if you were here for Genesis, it's very clear um, because one, there's no other reason to wipe out the entire world because if every other view that you take the sons of God, if you want a more detailed thing on this, go to my teaching on Genesis 6 and audio and the notes on my website. I'll give you way more details. But there's no, all the other views don't explain why God would wipe out the entire world. But specifically what I think, um, three things that really make it clear that this is angelic beings is one, the sons of God always, always means divine supernatural beings in the Bible. But two and three is Second Peter and Jude chapter, Jude six. In Second Peter, he tells us as he's condemning the false teachers, that there was a group of angels who left their proper dominion and that they did this in the times of Noah and they were thrown into the abyss or Tartarus, an underground dungeon. Do you know Tartarus? This is where the Titans in Greek mythology were thrown into. And so we're told in Peter, Second Peter, that a group of angels violated their boundaries that God had set up for them during the times of Noah, and it was so bad that they had to be thrown in the abyss. Then Jude comes along and says that they were thrown in the abyss for sexual immorality, that they were having, and not just sexual immorality, but sleeping with things that they should not sleep with in the same way that Sodom and Gomorrah was sleeping with people that they should not be sleeping with, man and man, meaning God never intended angels to be sleeping with humans, and they did that. So between these two, we're told that angels during the time of Jesus, oh, I'm sorry, during the time of Noah, left their dominion that God had set up for them and committed sexual sins, meaning that if they're going contrary to the will of God, then they're demons, and that God threw them in the abyss. And they are held there to this day under judgment. And so this is the abyss. The abyss is where like they're really bad demons go to. I mean, they're all bad. But the ones who have done something so horrific beyond just tempting people that they have threatened the very natural order of God's creation and they're thrown there. And then we're told in Revelation that all of them will be thrown there in some kind of a way. And so what they're saying is that they recognize that Jesus has the authority to throw them the abyss in the way that Yahweh does and that they are fearing that this the day that he has come to bring it into all the demons and throw them in the abyss. And they're like, please, 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 we don't want to go there. Which means this is something that freaks them out big time. The ultimate and final judgment of Yahweh, they see Jesus having that authority. That's huge. Only Yahweh has the authority to judge people in the ultimate, well, period, but even in an ultimate final destination kind of a sense. And they recognize him as having that authority. They beg him, do not cast us in the abyss. Now large herds of pigs, showing this a Gentile territory, were feeding there on the hillside, and the demonic spirits begged Jesus to let them go into them. And he gave him permission. Now they don't want to go into the air. We don't know exactly what that means. Okay, the air seems to be a wondrous place. It seems that demons like being in things. They like having homes, whether it's you or animals or whatever. It also shows that animals can be possessed if they go into this kind of stuff. But the question is, why don't they want to just be left in the airy or watery places? What are the airy, watery places? And then two, the question that is not answered is, why did Jesus put them in the pigs? Why was that somehow, why did he give in to their request? What was going on there? Did he allow that to happen that they gave in to the, why, why would the pigs 
Why is it a form of judgment in some kind of way? Maybe it's not. Maybe we're making assumptions as a form of judgment. Third, why does he allow the pigs to be driven off the cliff and all these 50 to 100 or more pigs get driven off the cliff and they die, which is the livelihood of the Gentiles. It's a horrible way of showing I care about you to kill then they burn down your business or, hey, come to me and accept me now because I burned down your business. Like he's this compassionate man, yet he seems to have no compassion. Uh, perhaps he was trying to show that the demons were unclean themselves by putting them in an unclean animal. Perhaps the pigs were a sacrifice for the, the, the atonement of the man now that he had been possessed because once you become clean, you have to make a sacrifice. But his possession was so huge, the sacrifice was big. Maybe the women paid for the life of the pigs afterwards and the author doesn't record it. Why didn't Luke record that? I don't know. Um, maybe it was a judgment against the Gentiles for the way that they had treated this man and that they, they didn't love him, they didn't take care of him and they punished him and that he's now punishing them for the way that they treated him. We don't know. Okay, and I throw those out there to say, some people are like, well, that's just jacked up of Jesus. There, there you go. What kind of a God do you fall? I throw all those things out there to say that there could be multiple reasonable explanations for why he did it. But at the same time, I'm not saying that it is one of those because that's an assumption. We don't know. Luke is not interested in those answers. All he's interested in is, is the absolute dominance of Christ over the demon and restoring the man to his right mind, restoring him back to the community. We love to have all those answers, but we're not giving them. We're not giving. It's better to err on the side of I don't know than on the side of making assumptions and connections that are not really there. It's okay to say perhaps, perhaps, perhaps to show that there is reasonableness to this that can be found. But be careful of saying it's this. Maybe we'll find out one day. Maybe we'll discover an ancient writing or an archaeological thing that will help us. That's happened multiple times in Scripture. But right now, we don't know. But the point is his dominance. So the people went to see what had happened. And they came to Jesus and they found the man from his demons had gone out sitting at Jesus' feet, just like the woman, and just like Martha later, clothed in his right mind. And they were afraid. And those who had seen it told them how the man who had been demon-possessed had been healed. And then all the people of the garrisons in the surrounding region asked Jesus to leave them alone, for they were seized with great fear. Are they afraid of what he will do to them? Are they afraid like, oh my gosh, this is, this is the power of a God. We know that we don't like having the gods among us because they're not good people. And we don't know that you're a different kind of God. We don't know why they're afraid. So he got into the boat and left. And the man from whom the demons had gone out begged to go with him. And Jesus sent them on a way saying, return to your home and declare what God has done for you. So he went away proclaiming through the whole town what Jesus had done for him. To the Jews, most things he says, don't tell anybody. But then in this guy, he says, go tell everybody. And the difference is the Jews already have enough that they don't need more to be proven that Jesus is God. The Gentiles have nothing. They don't have the word of God. They, they, they don't have the this, this stories of who he is. They haven't seen it. So they need more testimony. The Jews should just be able to hear and see a few things and immediately accept. The Gentiles need to be told. The Jews have always had the word of God. They could accept at any moment. They don't even need Jesus to come along. And they know they don't need Jesus because of Abraham and David and Elijah and Elisha and Isaiah. Like, they didn't need Jesus to put their faith in God. The Gentiles haven't seen anything. 
But the other thing, too, is the Gentiles are not going to be the ones who kill Jesus. It's going to be the Jews. And then the more the people talk, the more the clock speeds up, the closer it gets to his death. And Jesus has to die at a very specific time in order for all this to be fulfilled. Verse 40. Now, when Jesus returned, the crowd welcomed him because they were waiting for him. And then a man named Jairus, who was ruler of the synagogue, came up falling at Jesus' feet. He pleaded with him to come to his house. And because he had only a daughter, about 12 years old, and she was dying, as Jesus was on his way. So Jairus is the leader of the synagogue. Powerful, prestigious man. Jesus, my 12-year-old daughter is dying. Come heal her. And Jesus goes. But on the way, Jesus was on his way. The crowds pressed against him. And now a woman who was there had been suffering from a hemorrhage for 12 years, but could not be healed by anyone. She came up behind Jesus and touched the edge of his cloak at once the bleeding stopped this other woman she's an older woman so we've got a girl at the beginning of her life who's threatened with death and we've got an older woman at the end of her life threatened with death but not as immediate the 12 year old girl has her whole life ahead of her and she's going to die permanently this other woman is in her old age and she's had this ailment for the last 12 years 12 and 12 and so she could survive another few minutes or another day and be just okay where the clock is ticking on Jairus' daughter. The 12 and the 12 put link them together. The both of the women link them together. She presses up against Jesus. Now, she has some kind of like inner um, uterine lining kind of ailment. And Matthew were given more details. So she basically has a bleeding issue from her uterine lining that just will not stop, has not stopped for 12 years. What this means is she's been unclean for 12 years. She's never been able to go in the temple and worship God. She's never been declared unclean, and she has to keep her distance from everyone all the time. And she has spent all her money, according to Matthew, and has not been able to find any answers. In fact, the doctors have made everything worse. Yes, she could survive another day, despite the immediacy of Jairus' daughter, but we also have an absolute desperateness. Both situations are desperate, just in different ways. She presses against Jesus, and she's healed. Now, here's what's interesting, too. I've been here. And, and when you go there, and you see where the synagogue is, and you see where he heals her in the streets, you realize that the distance like going from one end of your sanctuary to the other end of the sanctuary is like way further than what Jesus is walking to Jairus' daughter. So there's a part of you who's like, dude, just walk the other 10 feet, heal the girl, and then come back to this woman in 10 feet. Like, why does this have to be dealt with now? And the question is, why is Jesus taking the time to deal with this woman? Jairus has every reason to say, I'm worthy. Yeah, why? I, I was here, like your daughters. I was here first. I was online first. Yeah. You, you just ditched me. You caught in. What if you do this at restaurants too? Like, I put my name in first, and yet they're getting seated before us. Okay, we order first, yet they're. I, I've been seeing the waiting room longer than them at the doctor's office, yet this person's being seen. What the heck? What is going on here? This is exactly what we do, even as grown people. Your little kids just don't do it. We do it. We're just a little bit more cultured about it. Another part of the reason, too, is to make sure that she is dead, to show that she is dead. But the other thing, too, is notice that there's... He could have just said there was a man who had a daughter who... There was a woman who had a son who had died, and he reached out and said, young man, get up. We don't need... 
She could have been extremely wealthy or poor. We don't know. But it says specifically Jairus was the leader of the synagogue. And everything that we know about everybody with power in the Jewish culture means that they're scorekeepers. Their social status. This is some old woman at the end of her life. God doesn't like her. He's allowed her to bleed out 12 years. If God really cared about her, he would have never made her unclean. She hasn't been to the, ta- the temple for 12 years worshiping God and that kind of stuff. I am more worthy. And what Jesus is showing is, no, you're not. Time doesn't matter to me. Lines don't matter to me. People matter to me. And I will get to all of you. But she, she has been humbled. She has been despised. She has been outcast. In fact, she is risking everything because she pushed herself in and she's touching people and brushing against them and touching Jesus. And if this doesn't work for her, she is going to be condemned big time from the religious leaders for violating her uncleanliness and violating everybody else. The quality of Jairus' daughter has only been interrupted for a few months, maybe. Hers has been years. Her quality of life has not been the same. And it's going to show Jairus, I care about people so much. I can put anything on halt. But because I'm also the absolute authority of the universe, it doesn't matter how long I push the pause button on anything, it can still get dealt with. You and I, we push the pause button on something, and we probably missed our opportunities sometimes. Or it all falls apart and then it's broken and we can't fix it. For us, hitting the pause button might be life and death. For Jesus, it's not. And so what he's making it very clear to Jairus is that I don't care what your status is. People matter to me. Suffering matters to me. And there is no reference in time when it comes to to working miracles. He's drawing his faith out. He's making him, he's humbling him. This is odd because she touches him and just touching him heals him. And Jesus says, the power has gone out of me. Don't think Duracell battery die. It's just that he felt something happen. And he felt the power go into somebody else. And he knew that he was healed. So the same thing. He then turns around to her. He says, who touched me? Now remember, this doesn't mean he doesn't know. We've often asked questions of our children, but we were not ignorant. We were just going to know, or are they going to be honest with us? So he says, who touched me? Now why is he asking? Because she could just get healed and slip through the crowd and be gone. And that would be me. I'd be just like, "Hmm, healed, gone. Don't make me stand on stage in front of everybody, okay? But not just that. She has violated all the Levitical laws of cleanliness, and there's a punishment for her. If he singles her out in front of the crowd, there's a judgment. And she knows that the Pharisees at least are going to judge her, but maybe even Jesus will rebuke her. You were like, well, that's not rational at this point. Yeah, but you're not her. You haven't been rejected and condemned and judged by all the leaders over and over again. And no matter how unique Jesus is, there's still the question of how unique is he? But the other thing is he's drawing her faith out. Because at this point, she doesn't need to be healed anymore. She's already healed. What she needs is to be accepted back into the community. Her being singled out to everybody is not just drawing her faith out. It's also making it clear to the people that she needs to be accepted back into the community. Jesus is not just interested in your healing. 
He's interested in restoration back to community life, social healing as well. That's often the thing that threatens us the most, is social death. She came trembling and fell down before him. In the presence of all the people, she explained why she had touched him and immediately been healed. And he said to her, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. Same thing he said to the woman who anointed his feet. While he was still speaking, someone from the synagogue ruler's house came and said to her, Daughter, do not be troubled, teacher, any longer. But when Jesus heard this, he told him, Do not be afraid, just believe, and she will be healed. Now when he came to the house, Jesus did not let anyone go in. So they tell him, Your daughter is dead. Do not be troubled, teacher, any longer. So hey, don't worry about coming anymore, teacher. She's dead. She's beyond help. Don't, you can go do your other thing now. Now, Jerry's has got to be flipping out right now. Mm-hmm. Like, I called you first. I was in line first. If you hadn't stopped for this dumb woman over here, I, my daughter could be alive today. There could be even bitterness and anger. We're not told this. We're not told. It just could be. Now, when he came to the house, Jesus did not let anyone go in with him except Peter, John, and James. This is the beginning of him beginning to single these three out to more um, privilege. Eh, more exclusive um, um, insights to who he is and what he is doing than some of the other disciples. Now they are wailing and mourning for her. But he said, Stop your weeping. She is not dead, but asleep. And they began making fun of him because they knew that she was dead. Like, it was not uncommon for you to actually hire people to mourn for you. And they're like, We're, We've seen death more all so much. This is our profession. Don't tell us when somebody's dead or not. You're an idiot. Who are you? You don't know anything. But Jesus gently took her by the hand and said, Child, get up. And the spirit returned, and she got up immediately, and they told them to give her something to eat. Notice how practical this is. Feed her. Restore her. Her parents were astonished, but he ordered them not to tell no one what had happened. Once again, you have that exclusivity around that restriction from that. He's restoring both girls. For the old woman, she needs to be restored back to the community of acceptance. For the little girl, she needs food in her. Both of them are restorations. And what God is showing is it doesn't matter what end of the spectrum he is dealing with. It doesn't matter how long the ailment has been. It doesn't matter how final it is. Nothing stops them. Nothing stops. Daryl Buck says this, The most fundamental lesson in this passage is the combination of the characteristic tied to faith. Faith should seize the initiative to act in dependence on God and speak about Him. Yet sometimes it must be patient. In one sense, faith is full speed ahead, while in another, it is waiting on the Lord. Our lives require a vibrant faith applied to the affairs of life but it also requires a patient waiting on the Lord, for the Father does know best. The most important thing is faith. For some people, Jesus acts instantaneously. Other people, he takes his time. For some people, he stops everything on the way to something else. For other people, he just keeps dragging out. We don't know. And it doesn't matter what he's doing. All that matters is that we have faith and we trust him. And this is the point that he's calling. All he keeps saying over and over and over again is that faith is the most important thing. Trusting in him. And then what does true faith look like? It means dropping everything, responding to him, 
following and trusting, and then proclaiming, producing fruit. These are what these stories are showing over and over again. There is nothing that Jesus cannot handle. There is no limit to his dominion and his authority and power. There is no one that he is not willing to go to with this authority, with this life, and with this healing. Jew, Gentile, rich, poor, man, woman. Doesn't matter. That his ultimate desire is the restoration to the community. His ultimate is that eventually they're just going to get sick again. Eventually she's going to die again. Eventually some other element is going to get that old woman and it's going to take her down. That is not the ultimate goal, it's just physical healing. The ultimate goal is social healing. Social healing being restored back to the body of Christ, the community of Christ, and the flesh, and the community, and the kingdom of God. That is the ultimate goal of citizenship, to be restored back. That, that not only does God see you as a child, and that you see yourself that way, that you truly believe that God loves you and accepts you, regardless of whether you're a man or woman, rich or poor, Jew or Gentile. But that that you see that, but that then you see yourself in that community and that everybody else in the community sees that too. Do we have the eyes to see that Jesus is saying, this man, that woman over there in your church, they are a child of God. And I don't care what they've done or how they act or where they've gone. I love them. They're in the community accepted just as much as anybody else. We need to see Jesus pointing the finger at people and saying, they're mine. And then what does it mean to be a part of this community? You drop everything, you follow Christ, you leave it all behind, whatever life you had, and you begin to produce fruit in your life that runs the good race, that perseveres, that does not give up. That proclaims who he is in words and deeds. And this is the message that we consistently get over, over and over and over again of what it means to be truly a part of the kingdom of God, what it really truly means for Jesus to enter in your life. Does this make sense?